This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Dan Fermat, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Wednesday, June 2nd. Dogecoin prices are up, U.S. COVID cases keep going down, and we're focused on how America's meat supply was just attacked. For the second time in as many months, a major part of America's infrastructure has been hit by hackers looking for a ransom. The first one was Colonial Pipeline, which supplies around half of all gasoline to the East Coast. Now it's JBS, the country's largest beef producer and its second largest meat producer overall, once you include poultry and pork. Three things to know. First, JBS responded by pausing processing at its five largest beef plants, although it also says that a majority of operations should resume by the end of today. Two, no word yet on if JBS paid the ransom. But for context, Colonial Pipeline said it wouldn't pay anything and then shelled out $4.4 million. Three, meat prices were already rising before the hack, partially due to drought, climbing 5% between March and April. And given that the pause JBS plants process more than 22,000 cattle per day, it's pretty likely the hack will lead to even more expensive burgers and steaks. Although we might not know for a while because the hack also prevented the USDA from calculating wholesale beef and pork prices. The bottom line is that for all the political talk about what infrastructure is and isn't, the reality is it's pretty broad, food supply included. Ransomware hackers know this, which means the only real question now is what pressure point they target next. So in 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Laura Riley, a Washington Post reporter covering the business of food to discuss the meat supply chain, domino effects, and where security needs to be shored up. But first, this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We're joined now by Laura Riley, a Washington Post reporter covering the business of food. So, Laura, let's start here. Is this the first known ransomware attack on the food supply chain in the U.S.? Yes, as far as I know. We're, we're seeing this more and more, and there certainly is a lot of chagrin in the food industry because it's especially vulnerable, and shortfalls can mean panic buying, as we saw last April, right? So um, this is something deeply concerning, and, and I think unlike a lot of Morgan Stanley or you know financial institutions that have been anticipating this and have huge infrastructure in place to to fend off these kinds of attacks, the food industry is maybe not so tech savvy. So I think that th this is going to be a real soul searching moment for some of these mega corporations like JBS. It's interesting when you say they're not tech savvy because obviously they rely a lot on technology. Do we know anything yet about kind of what part or what at JBS actually got attacked? 
So I think it's still um, either they're not quite ready to lay it out there for us or they're still gathering information. But I haven't seen a, a deep dive on what precisely was attacked. So, Laura, walk me through a little bit. What happens when a cyber attack stops thousands of workers at meatpacking plants from going to work? Kind of the, the food supply chain domino effect. Well, JBS has said that they don't anticipate a significant shortfall in the, sh- in, you know, in the near term. But as we saw with even a single one of their mega processing plants going dark last April, it has a significant impact on supply chain. So for instance, um, a lot of the pork producers just didn't have anywhere to have their animals slaughtered, you know, and you can't just hold them. They get too big. They, they won't fit in the machinery to have them processed. So you end up, I mean, we had a lot of animals euthanized um, prematurely and basically put in landfill, not to be grotesque, but that, that was kind of what happened. You have a little more leeway with cows, you know, with cattle. You can kind of have their diets impacted a little bit, kind of uh, slow down their growth a little bit. And they're, they're, it's a little bit more forgiving in terms of holding on to them. But then you also have cattle ranchers that don't have any money coming into the their pockets. So there are significant problems if you have these stutters that logjam hundreds of thousands of animals waiting to be slaughtered. You refer to it as a stutter. It was interesting because when Colonial Pipeline shut down last month, that took days for them to get back up. Do we have any information yet? JBS seems to have gotten back to operation very, very quickly. Well, that's what they're saying. So everybody's back to work um, and they're saying it's not going to have a significant impact. I mean, they may run extra you know, lines, but there's only so fast line speeds can go, right? I mean, we've, we've de- dealt with this. I mean, it's dangerous for those uh, to not be capped at certain speeds. And it's not like you can move those living animals to a different facility uh, with ease. I mean, these are really far apart. I mean, everyone I've talked to this past year about our meat supply has said, the biggest problem, whether you're talking about boutique, like bespoke meat or the big industrial kind of feedlot meat, the bottleneck is almost always on the processing side. If we learn anything from this is that we need more processing plants, we need greater redundancies so that if one of these big processing plants has to go offline, we're not completely hamstrung. Is that what you mentioned at the beginning of this, that the U.S. food supply chain is particularly vulnerable to cyber attack? Outside of that bottleneck, the, the meat processing bottleneck, what, why else is the food supply chain particularly vulnerable? Well, it's because there are four companies that run the lion's share of it. So if you're talking about poultry, I mean, let's kind of spread out a little bit. Poultry is super vertically integrated. So basically the companies own the eggs, the baby chickens, the medium-sized chickens, they slaughter them, they do the whole thing. Pork is more of a hybrid model. So some of it is is vertically integrated, meaning the producer is also the person dealing with the slaughter and the packaging, et cetera. And then cattle is more spread out. So they're the ranchers and then they sell their commodity beef in and to these feedlots and then et cetera. So there are a lot of different models that make this work, but the big problem is that too few companies own most of it. JBS, I mean, like basically when they put five of their processing plants dark yesterday, it was a huge percent of the national meat supply. So that that is the problem with having too few players. Laura, beef prices in the U.S. were already rising before this hack. Why? Well, so we saw high demand. Um, some of this can be explained by those stimulus checks, 
by unemployment insurance supplements. It may be explainable because, you know, people were went without restaurants for a year and they were cooking more at home and maybe they had a greater comfort level with cooking the good stuff at home. Or maybe they were just jonesing for a good steak, you know, something that maybe traditionally they would have only eaten out. So we've seen a lot more purchase of beef and higher quality beef at home. I mean, it used to be that the good stuff went to restaurants and the ground beef went to, you know, what we eat at home. So that's, that's shifted in the course of the pandemic. We've also had real strong exports. And some of that is because the you know it was a couple of years back the Chinese uh, pork herd was decimated by African swine fever so they've been buying in a lot more pork in particular but also beef at the beginning of the pandemic there's been a moratorium on on exporting our beef to China and then we've also done some really interesting things like if you're talking about pork. We had like a year ago we had a huge amount of pork in cold storage in freezers around the country. The federal government decided that one way to get food insecure people fed was to buy up that pork and give it out via that Farmers to Families Food Box program uh, at food banks. So it was a win-win. It you know the the pork producers were paid. Americans got fed, but it decimated the amount of pork we have in freezers right now. Laura, do you believe that the JBS hack and taking those plants offline for a couple of days? Do you believe that will have an impact at the grocery store and on the restaurant menu? So at the grocery store, we definitely see panic buying. So that begets more, right? We have seen this, you know, toilet paper, yeast, et cetera, et cetera. We saw so many reports of shortfalls that exacerbated irrational spending habits. So yes, I think we're going to see that. And in terms of restaurants, this is all happening concurrently with hundreds of thousands of restaurants restocking their walk-ins and freezers, right? I mean, a lot of these restaurants that were at half capacity or quarter capacity or takeout only, they're all coming back online now. And those restaurants need to fill up their fridges. So they're going to compete with whatever's left over right now. If meat suppliers, if other food suppliers have to significantly increase their tech spend, do you believe consumers are going to end up paying more because of that? Yes, absolutely. So another interesting thing, and I'm working on a story about this right now, is that before the pandemic, um, you know, we saw kind of the rise of plant-based proteins and all of the industry analysts that I spoke to said, oh, well, the limiter there, it's never going to be competitive because it's not price competitive. We're years away from it being price competitive. Well, in the course of the pandemic, meat prices have continued to rise, rise, rise for all of the reasons we've just mentioned. And plant-based proteins have scaled up and have kind of economies of scale in terms of their suppliers. They're either inflow, outflow. Um, So their prices have come down significantly in the past 18 months. So price parity, maybe a couple of years ago, we were thinking 2023, 24, maybe further out. And now we may be seeing some price parity this year. So there are going to be um, incursions on traditional animal agriculture with this raft of new plant-based meats. Laura, final question for you. You talked about how Wall Street and oil companies, et cetera, have kind of always been preparing for the possibility of cyber attacks. From your perspective, does this just become the new normal in the food industry? Certainly for these big companies that are are realizing their own vulnerabilities, it seems very likely that they are going to recognize the imperative to to be as airtight as possible and to hire on good people that can, can prevent this in the future. Laura Riley of The Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Welcome back. What we're also watching today is Israel, where Isaac Herzog was just elected the country's 11th president. This was a parliamentary election, not a popular vote, and presidents in Israel are much less powerful than our prime ministers. But Herzog assumes the presidency at a particularly interesting time in Israeli politics for two distinct reasons. First, the recent violence between Israel and Palestine, which is certain to be a topic of conversation during next week's G7 summit. Second, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is on trial for corruption, and the president has the power to pardon, or not to pardon. In fact, there have been some early speculation that Netanyahu would run for president himself to effectively create immunity from prosecution. But when asked today by reporters if he'd consider pardoning Netanyahu, Herzog dodged. Oh, but wait, there's more. Today is also the deadline for Israel's opposition party to form a new government that could actually force Netanyahu out of power for the first time in more than a decade. But as of the time we taped this on early Wednesday afternoon, no such deal had yet been struck with a 5 p.m. Eastern deadline. If no deal's reached, then Israel heads to its fifth national election in just two years. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producer, Sabina Sangani, Justin Kaufman, Naomi Shaven, and Alex Sugiara. Please be sure to leave us a review. And if you're not already following the podcast or subscribe to it, do so. Have a great national rotisserie chicken day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios recap.